Hello everybody and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name is Billy. How's it going? How's life? Life is busy, but also very, very positive. And we are in the full swing of awards season, which is my favourite time of the cinematic year because you get to discuss all sorts of you know, predictions, uh, you know, what your personal favourites are, how, you know, politics and the wider industry landscape might affect people's voting choices for the Oscars and the Golden Globes and the Emmys, and, you know, if how the winners and the nominees of yesteryear compares to how the landscape is looking this year. This is also Billy's busiest time of year because he has to get <laughs> around and watch all of these award-nominated films in time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I am scouring those nomination lists and already just like, you know, most of my, a lot of my viewing diary and viewing habits and viewing plans is, you know, is dictated by, you know, what is hot out of the festival circuit, what is getting tipped early for awards so I can get ahead. And it means I'm not having to watch the entire best picture lineup two weeks before the ceremony, because that can get a little <laughs> bit hectic, even for somebody as productive as <laughs> on viewing as me. So Billy yes, awake very at two AM with like crazy eyes, and a... <laughs> <laughs> I can just picture it now. <laughs> As if I don't do that already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Our reviews today are going to be Mean Girls, Society of the Snow, Saltburn, and Good Grief. But before we get on to any of that, I've got a new segment for us, Billy. Oh, hit me with it. So the segment is called. This day in film history, where I am going to give you some facts about what happened on this very day. It's currently Sunday, the 21st of January, 2024. But what happened on this day in film history in years gone by? And I've got, so, I've got a weird combination <laughs> for today. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any so, other way. On this day in film history, in 1982... Shaolin Temple, a martial arts film, was released, and it was among the first major co-productions between Hong Kong and mainland China, and it was the first to be filmed in mainland China with a mostly mainland cast. Wouldn't That's you know? great. And I also have a funny feeling that maybe it's a different strain of, maybe it's a different strain of, Jap of Chinese or Japanese films that this refers to, but... There's, do you know, you know the rap group, the Wu-Tang Clan? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm a, for anyone who doesn't know any listeners, you know, I'm a huge 90s rap music fan. And the Wu-Tang Clan makes, you know, a lot of their mythos and sound effects and stuff in their music is references the Shaolin and the Shoguns and the Kung Fu and martial arts films from Chinese and Japanese cinema of decades gone by. And just when you said Shaolin Temple, I was like, oh my God, Wu-Tang. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, it, I mean, it is an actual temple. It is an actual place. So maybe they were is referring it? to the actual place rather than the 1982 smash hit. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they, they do, they actually but, include samples from old Kung Fu and martial arts films. Whether or not it's actually Shaolin Tempo is a, well, is maybe, a matter. Maybe, but Billy, you need to do like a quick... A quick fact check while I give you my second fact. Do you want to get on the Google and see if you can find out if the, the Wu-Tang Clan oh, oh, I <laughs> am. some sound effects from Shaolin Temple is <laughs> scouring the web as we speak? Oh, I am. While Billy is doing that, I want to tell you my second fact about what happened on the 21st of January. And this time it was in 1996. Um, Nicolas Cage won a Golden Globe for leaving Las Vegas. Oh! <laughs> One of his only legitimately great performances ever. And still, like, managing to be kind of very Nick Cage and kind of how explosive and, you know, strange it's, you know, kind of he has these very sort of zany laughs and sort of darts at the eyes and everything when he's sort of intoxicated and sort of in the throes of his alcoholism, his character. But he still manages to give that performance real heart and real emotional heft. And shows sort of the, the very sort of slow and sort of protracted breakdown of this man. He ended up going on to win an Oscar for it. And yeah, he did, a, yeah. It's a very depressing film, but <laughs> a very, very, a very human one. And I think one that, I mean, considering the, the Las Vegas setting and how sort of debauched a lot of 
and decadent and lavish and you know extravagant a lot of films about Vegas are that one really gets to kind of the the grit and the grime kind of underneath and the seediness underneath the surface of it all so yes leaving Las Vegas not not a, a light watch but a very good one and with a really great central Nicolas Cage performance and I think you know with Dream Scenario and Adaptation and Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and Mandy I think there, there is evidence that the man can act he just he likes to give it to us sparingly are you telling me that Nicolas Cage's greatest acting performance isn't acting high with Pedro Pascal, because I'd like to differ <laughs> that that was one of the most entertaining performances I've ever seen from Sir Nicolas Cage. That may give Leaving Las Vegas and the Oscar win some competition. I do have yeah, to Yeah, I think that. so. I think so. Just for the memes alone of Indeed. Pedro's little high face. <laughs> Just in the back of the car, yeah. tipped back. Incredible scenes. Uh, on Incredible. The, on, the on the topic of Shaolin and the Wu-Tang, there are, men <laughs> there are many. Shaolin and Wu-Tang, Ten Tigers of Guangtung, um, the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, Executions from Shaolin. There's like a bunch of snake and cane, no, snake and crane arts of Shaolin. There's a bunch of late 70s and early 80s martial arts films with Shaolin or Dragon. In, or temple in the title that <laughs> the Wu-Tang Clan have sampled in their earlier albums. So Incredible. it's a part of, of hip-hop history and it's a significant part of movie history. Double whammy. Incredible. Well, those were my two facts <laughs> for today. If you want to know what happens tomorrow, it's the, the, um, the A-Team with Mr. T uh, was first aired. So, you know, oh. when this is released, just remember it's the anniversary of an absolute legendary TV series. Do you know I've never seen a single episode of the A Team? Disgraceful. <laughs> you didn't catch it on reruns or anything? No, I just I I don't think I've to be fair, I don't think I've ever seen it like rerun on TV, like in the TV guide or anything. So I don't think I've like mm. had an like stumbled upon an opportunity to watch it. But then again, I've never seen it. So you have out. to go like into the deep channels. You know, the rubbish <laughs> ones. The ones that have like 200 adverts before you get a minute of the actual show. That's that's where you need to look. <laughs> movies for men. <laughs> yeah, it'd be something like that. It'd be like lad movies. 200 or something that's like my, that. That's my homework. That's my mission for next week. I've got to watch an episode of The A-Team <laughs> and report back to you. Please do. I want to know everything. I want, I want, I want a full-blown... Actually, I want a reaction on the Instagram, please. Billy, I want live <laughs> updates on you watching an episode of the A-Team. <laughs> Let's see if I love it or hate it, or somewhere yeah. in between. Okay, so moving on, let's talk a little bit about awards season. We had our big This Is Billy's Top 10 Films of the Year um, in our last episode, and within that we had quite a few that are within the awards circuit this season. You know, Golden Globes, Oscars, BAFTAs, they all tend to have their own kind of agendas, but there's usually a couple of films, the big heavy hitters that are across every single one of them and kind of drown out the rest of the noise. So today I wanted to have a little bit of a chat about award season trends in general and what kind of trends um, and what these trends say about us, about the film going public and the critics at this point in time. And I'm going to start off with um, saying that there are only four films in existence who have won 10 or more Oscars. Can you guess what they are? Well, I know there are three that are tied for 11. Lord of the Rings, yes. Return of the King, Titanic and Ben-Hur. Correct. I can't, I can't remember the one that's won 10. And I think I'll kick myself when you tell me. It's a musical. Does that help? Oh, is it West Side Story? It is. Well done. Damn, yes. Yeah. I, so I West Side Story's on 10 and then the rest are on 11. Controversial opinion. I really like West Side Story. I think it's a bit overrated in the annals of cinema. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but it is very enjoyable. I love West Side Story, but I do think it's Romeo and Juliet. Like, it is just Romeo and Juliet, and I'm yeah, not well, the biggest is. fan of yeah. Romeo and Juliet. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you're not... If you're not loving that kind of story, it's not going to be your favourite, is it? Um, but the music is 
Mwah, I'm doing a chef's kiss. You can't see. <laughs> it's a podcast, but you know, just vision. Imagine that. You've been having a look at some previous Oscar winners. Can you talk us through like some of the previous Best Picture winners and, and see if they've got anything in common? Well, we had, you know, I was absolutely ecstatic to see everything everywhere all at once, you know, a totally crazy, you know, out of this world, multiverse, genre hopping, family drama, but sci-fi action epic take home best picture, um, you know, during, during that year. It just felt like, you know, the Academy were finally, you know, bowing to the, you know, the, the superior film, despite it kind of breaking all the traditional, you know, stuffy historical drama conventions that have permeated the Oscars in the past. And that was a real breath of fresh air. As much as I like Coda from one of the other previous years, and that was an amazing win for representation. You know, that's a wonderful film in a lot of ways, even if I think parts of the narrative are quite generic um, to the slight detriment of the overall story. That was a that was a really wonderful moment for representation in deaf cinema, even if I don't think it was one of the best films in that category. Um, I it, it it's hard to be that annoyed about it because it is so heartwarming, so moving, and so and such and such a positive decision in the eyes of representation. Sorry, just that wasn't Coda based on a previous film, like a German film. Perhaps I, it one adapted screenplay, so it is based yeah. off a previous work. I'm not sure if that's a novel or a previous film. I've got but, a feeling um, it's like a foreign. I, I've got. I'll have to look this up. I've got a feeling it's an international film because there was a bit of controversy about it at the time, where yeah. it was basically like this film's won the Oscar, whereas the original didn't quite get the recognition it deserves even though it's in the same category so an interesting thing maybe to bear in mind about that one it's an adaptation of a french belgian film called la famille Belière. apologies if i've butchered that pronunciation but that's from 2014 and yes you kind of you want the you want the previous and initial sort of inception of the story to be the one that's rewarded you don't necessarily want a potentially sanitized repackaging of that story to get the major awards contention but if it does mean that, you know, a story about, you know, very deserving and very hardworking, very vibrant, you know, deaf people um, gets a lot of notoriety and awards consideration, then that isn't a total loss in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had the, I believe we watched it together at uni, um, the historic Parasite Oscar win, the first foreign film ever oh, in yes. history. Uh, but we all, a bunch of us uni friends all stayed up live to watch it, and we all went. We're watching. We're watching in a historical moment. We were basking in history being made that that morning. Quite and, a lot yeah. of alcohol might have been consumed at that time as well, but that didn't, you know, not to take away from the absolutely <laughs> monumental moment that it was. <laughs> yes. So I do think the Academy has been making a lot of very positive and very kind of forward-thinking decisions that aren't necessarily always pandering towards representation, but are picking, for the most part, the most solid and deserving films. And I think the Best Picture lineup this year is, again, you know, it's continuing that trend of a bit of traditional, as you know, I think is perfectly fine, but also, you know, again, really forward thinking, really varied work. I've been having a look a little bit about trends in some of the current films that are, you know, going around the award circuit. Um, a few interesting ones. I mean, I've, I've made, um, I've tried to like write them down in categories of different kinds of representation. Um, once again, the representation with people of colour is probably one of the smallest categories. Um, which seems to be a bit of a trend. Uh, we've got, of course, as an American fiction, American Symph- uh, symphony, the color purple, which isn't out in the UK yet, uh, and the creator, which was a sci-fi, which I'm quite interested. I think that's just dropped on Disney Plus, and I will be giving that a little look. Um, I heard some mixed things about it kind of being a bit too Star Wars esque, but I'm intrigued that it's been getting a, a bit of awards buzz about it. I remember there was quite a bit of buzz when it came out. Um, but in general, that kind of representation is still not quite where it needs to be. And it's interesting to look at the kind of films with um, black representation or different ethnicities, the kind of stories that are getting 
the awards attention, they all tend to be kind of films about race, which I find quite mm. interesting, other than The Creator, which I think is sci-fi, but again, I've not seen it. But American Fiction, American Symphony, and The Colour Purple are kind of, you know, they're black films, but they're also about race subject matter or about like historical implications on race and people coming to America, especially American fiction, which again, I, I think that's just about to come out in the UK, but looking at the synopsis, um, it seems really interesting not to take away from the films themselves, but I do find it interesting that outside of this category, the kind of films that are doing well you know, we're still not seeing a lot of diversity, not diversity in terms of representation or diversity within storytelling, you know, like diversity within diversity, if you know what I mean. And I think that's kind of a trend that I've seen throughout this year. We spoke about um, when I was listing off my best films of the year um, last last week, uh, one of the things I loved most about Rye Lane was the fact that it was a, a British sitcom, not not British romantic comedy that had two black leads that again didn't have any and this was I didn't I was not alone in this sentiment. I saw this echoed online and between, you know, friends of mine who saw the film, you know, it was it didn't have really any plot um concern or focus on the race of the lead actors. It was kind of just, you know, they were existing as characters within this very kind of diverse and multicultural setting of, you know, South London that the film takes place in you know why couldn't i mean that i think that film has been awarded by the biffers and um and also you know another critics choice and golden globes and potential oscar contender you know coleman domingo's performance in rustin where he plays um the man who sort of helmed and organized the, the big march in washington dc where martin luther king would deliver his famed i have a dream speech and you know, wonderful performance, really important story that should be told. I, you know, and he was also a gay black man, so that's you know an extra layer of representation on that. But again, you know, it's it has the sort of the um, the makeup with the very rousing music, and and again, you know, a black story you know, focused on race. And great that these stories are being told. But you know, when we see a film like Past Lives, which has really great Asian rep- Asian American representation in sort of this story, this a story about um, people traveling away from their country and then sort of reconnecting with their past life and reckoning with their decisions now. Again, it's there is a cultural element to that, but it's not sort of pervasive. It's not sort of all consuming of the story. Why can't we have, you know, I'm sure there was something like, you know, Earth Mama that I had an honorable mention for last week, you know, American independent film that um, has a very diverse cast and, but again, is more focused on sort of social systems and, you know, flawed and impoverished areas that are making it difficult for mothers to raise um, their children in in America. You know, so I think there are, I think there were definitely contenders that could have been selected this year that um, have diverse casts, but doesn't necessarily focus on, you know, oppression or prejudice or you know, have plots sort of adjacent to that. I think, you know, there's definitely room for diverse stories that, you know, have more complex views of their characters and the ethnicities of their characters and how they sort of fit within society. Definitely. And I think that's great that you're, you know, you just called attention to some really great films that maybe aren't getting uh, the same amount of awards buzz as we think that they deserve. I mean, that's what your list was for, but, um, you know, I'd recommend to check that out. But I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's great that these films exist, but they're not at the forefront and we need to be championing them a little bit more, I think, within uh, within our kind of film awards culture. I mean, the same can be said for, for LGBT representation. Um, we have had quite good representation this year, but I would say that it's still very heavily sided on gay men. You know, you've got All of the Strangers, Maestro, Saltburn, very different movies. <laughs> <laughs> all of them why not bottoms oh no well bottoms this, um, but bottoms <laughs> well is bottoms going to win any awards this is what i'm saying no but what i was what yeah, i was saying was you know, why I'm, not I'm have like, it considered all... i exactly well i would say you know i mean i think comedy especially doesn't get the awards buzz that a lot of the time 
it deserves as a genre. It usually gets snubbed a bit. I do think that Barbie might change that a little bit this year. Yeah, I think I think it's it's really great to see you know, an on the surface very you know sugary and buoyant you know blockbuster actually have get awards consideration and actually have some really profound things to say about patriarchy and the way men treat women in society and women individuality. And it is really great to see, you know, again, even though Maestro is stylistically the most obviously Oscar baity of the bunch in terms of, you know, it has very, you know, attention grabbing, provocative, stylish camera moves and is very kind of theatrical in some of its presentation. You know, a good half of that story is dedicated to Leonard Bernstein's wife. And, you know, she makes up a very significant part of the story. And I like the fact that the toll that his, you know, success and his affairs and the marriage took on her, you know, had, wasn't ignored and wasn't sort of pushed to one side. You know, the the lead in past lives being um, being a woman and ha- being having a really introspective, thoughtful woman at the centre of that film. That was really wonderful to see her as a lead there and have the focus be on her. Devine Joy Randolph um, in The Holdovers, you know, playing a a sort of complex, you know, grieving, but also very strong and very robust um, black woman in The Holdovers opposite Paul Giamatti and uh, a really, you know, very out there and very kind of forceful and provocative story, but but nonetheless very important one about um, feminism and sexual liberation in Poor Things. I I do think there is some really, there are sort of, I think Sprinklings is sort of underselling it a little bit, but I do think there is are examples here in awards season of sort of very interesting and unconventional stories in terms of, you know, cinematic presentation, but also, you know, tackling important issues and maybe moving in some senses in the right way uh, for representation. It feels like there's less tokenism um which is nice that there seems to be you know it's not just the one film do you get what i mean like it's not the Hmm. musical it's not the gay film it's not the black film you know that we've had years where it has kind of felt like that that there was only really one front runner for each kind of person you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas this year it feels like more of a scattering. I will say that there's still, you know, a big emphasis on historical dramas led by men, you know, about historical things that happened. And those films all sound like they're good films. Um, I think it depends. I mean, to what extent do you think award season actually reflects what is popular? right now like do you think that it's accurate do you think that the critics reflect what is being consumed i'm kind of half and half about it this year yeah i'm very half and half about it as well i think you know everyone was very excited for killers of the flower moon and the voice that that gave to the osage people is really really important but then again you know this is this is another entry in the in the career of a very you know a a strong and introspective entry and a more emotive and insightful entry, perhaps, but it is made by Martin Scorsese, who's one of the, you know, cinematic, you know, American titans. And again, you know, Christopher Nolan doing Oppenheimer, which doesn't have the greatest written female characters in the world, to kind of put it mildly. (laughs) Um, So I do think, you know, there's kind of, there's a bit of friction here between, you know, some, so again, some really interesting work from a diversity and narrative perspective, but in terms of the people who are helming it, perhaps not, you know, the most diverse or novel choices. Who would you say, top of your head, just to end the segment, your best picture winner for this year? My best picture winner? Yeah. I think I know what it is. Oh, poor things by an absolute mile. (laughs) Really? I still still haven't seen it yet. I've heard kind of, um, obviously you've raved about it, but I've also heard some interesting... Um, points of view about it that I'm really interested to to watch and explore for myself because I think yeah there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely essay material <laughs> within that one. Oh, 
There very much is. And it will, it will, I think it will rub some people the wrong way. But, you know, I think great audacious stories don't please everyone. And that is just fine. Mine is Barbie. Um, not just because I had the best time and it has become one of my most used memes. Um, you know, just <laughs> on my phone. I use the GIFs all the time. But I just think it's a really strong screenplay. And it wasn't what I expected. It like I was I was I went into the cinema expecting one thing and I was blown away with what we actually got and the depth of it and the emotion of it and the fact that it was actually a really good film. So I mm. think I think if I could have a a best picture, I don't think it'll do it, but I would absolutely love it to do it, is Barbie. I wouldn't I wouldn't entirely roll it out. I wouldn't mm. entirely roll it out. Mean Girls. Mean Girls is a <sighs> musical adaptation of the 2000... Is it 2009 or 2004? I've got a feeling it's 2004. 2004. Yeah, god damn, we're old. Um, the 2004 original comedy film written and starring... Well, starring in a cameo role, Tina Fey. It's one of my absolute favourite high school movies. And this is a musical reimagining for the modern era. Billy, <laughs> what did you think of I've this already, one? I've, al I've already primed you for you what have. is about to happen. Billy's, Billy messaged me saying, get ready for a rant. So I'm bracing myself. I'm turning the noise on my headphones down so I don't bust my ears um, while oh. you go off on one. <laughs> oh, so Right. Yeah. <laughs> so... Before I embark on the odyssey of whining that I will imminently subject you all to, whether you like it or not, I would just like to qualify that I am a fan of the original Mean Girls. A big fan, in fact. I think it's far and away the strongest of that kind of late 90s run, an early 2000s run spate of like satirical, but also kind of cutesy and buoyant teen comedies like Legally Blonde and 10 Things I Hate About You and Clueless. Of all of those films, I think you know Mean Girls is easily the best of the bunch. It's the sharpest in terms of commentary on teen culture. It's the most entertaining on a humour level. And it's, for me, the most vibrantly memorable on a character and performance level. I mean, you know, Lindsay Lohan's character and uh, Regina George, played by, you know, the immortal performance of Rachel McAdams, have, you know, passed into the annals of popular culture, and rightfully so. So I say all this to make it known that I'm a fan of the material, and I went in wanting to like this, having heard not the greatest things, and I really did want to find the good in it and kind of hope the musical format could provide something novel here because it worked well on Broadway, apparently. But everything about the way they execute the story this time around makes all the famous and iconic scenes and characters ring so unbelievably sour that the experience of sitting through this excruciating quagmire of a teen flick should be labelled an Olympic sport as far as I'm concerned. Because I did really, I looked at my watch about 45 minutes in and I really went, oh, Jesus, God, there's another hour of this. Help me. Take me now, please. Because, so the film opens with this surreal kind of steady cam shot sequence that traverses the plains of Africa as our lead character sings about moving away from Kenya. Firstly, I have seen more convincing backgrounds and green screens in episodes of Dora the Explorer. I half expected the cast <laughs> to break the fourth wall and like shout and try and get me to participate Dora style in the middle of the cinema. And secondly, and this doesn't, this is not exclusive to this scene. This goes for the rest of the camera work in the film too. I'm like, did this, I'm thinking to myself, did the Steadicam op like rock up to the set after hammering back 14 Jägermeisters? Because my uncoordinated ass could walk across a tightrope carrying two anvils during, you know, a, a magnitude four earthquake and I would shake less than the camera does in this film. I'm just like, it's constantly <laughs> rattling. I'm like, what was this guy or woman getting paid? My God. The tone and the aesthetic is all wrong. The grade is like drier than the Sahara Desert. And it's about as colourful as Antarctica. Like, seriously, who directs a musical to look this dull? Like, all of the originals, wry and cheeky and grinning attitude has, like, completely vanished. It's totally devoid from the story here. You know, then there's the issue of how like egregiously the tone causes problems that like ripple across the rest of the film. Because like any exuberance or satirical edge that 
was you know was enhanced in the original film by this you know the, this very clear creative decision that you were, you were seeing heightened reality. This wasn't supposed to be taken completely seriously. Kind of, I think you know, I think in the way that Bottoms does, I think Bottoms kind of owes a debt to Mean Girls in that respect. But you know, when you look at this, that whole you know tone and atmosphere has been sucked entirely from the story. And to the point, and the performances are so painfully half-baked as well, you know, who knew Regina George could be played this limp and unintimidated, unintimidating. But, you know, everything that's funny and relatable about the story comes across as thunderously flat or howlingly ridiculous and cringeworthy. You know, I'm just watching stuff, seeing, I've seen this before in the original film. It worked well there. It is not working in the slightest here. And it's just boring. And it, and as a result to make matters worse it makes the most it makes the more stereotypical performances you know of intellectually character intellectually challenged characters you know there's the girl in the plastics who's called the stupid one okay, or the token yeah. gay best Aaron, yeah her and also a, the, the token gay best friend character who i believe is a new addition to this version no, of the film no um, the, the, he's in there before Oh, is, is he in there? I'm just, yeah, it's, it's been a long time. I, I must it's be like, well, misremembering. It, it, this is Damien. He's too gay to function. Yes. So obviously too gay to function in the original film, hilarious. And, uh, you know, in the tone of sort of this takedown of suburban, you know, vapid t- uh, American teen culture, that line hits so well and is so funny. In this, it just comes across as actually quite grossly offensive and stereotypical in just... Because it, it's not hanging and, and firmly putting its boots enough in that satire mode and format. And that is just a, a real failing of the film and I think really works against it. The way it careens from like these undercooked, bratty scenes of teen angst and drama to the most head-scratching musical numbers I've seen in, a, in quite a long time is a complete mess. There's this one sequence where the choreography has the students dancing and gyrating and guffawing as though they are animals because the Regina George social ladder situation is being depicted as kind of this waterhole in Africa type situation where all the animals are kind of fighting for sort of supremacy. And, you know, everyone's kind of clambering up trees like monkeys. I'm like, have all of these kids just simultaneously dropped acid and, <laughs> and we're just capturing it on camera? Oh, my God, what is happening? Well, I mean, that happens the in the original comedi- as well. I, th- I mean, it, um, the thing with the original was that it was always kind of from Lindsay Lohan's character's point of view. I mean, I imagine that's why that's the way that they've tried to do it this time as well. But with... Da- song and dance numbers that doesn't quite work you know even if you're trying to do it from the main character's point of view if you have a song and dance number then that kind of breaks the fourth wall in a way mm. and then it kind of calls yeah. into question the reality of everything <laughs> happening in the film yeah you know it just i think when you kind of break the fourth wall in that respect and you're calling attention to how false everything is then the more ex- the more kind of extravagant sort of stretches of reality just start to just fall apart and be- and just not be credible at all in in the world of this film and I think that's just the case in point problem here you know the sense of comedic timing in the edit and the cast interaction is also just non-existent like I've I can't remember a comedy in recent memory where the jokes landed with this much of a seismic thud to the point where you kind of almost feel the shock waves reverberate <laughs> through the cinema and you kind of want to cringe internally so hard that you know you almost break, you know, damage your shoulder blade. You know, there are oh there are also these eye-wateringly vapid and heavy-handed TikTok montages. And the song and dance numbers are like choreographed to be like TikTok songs. Oh, oh my. my god, it made me sick. <laughs> And these moments were like such an eyesore, like it made me want to like take my mobile phone, you know, and not just delete TikTok because I have it on my phone. I don't have an account, but it's there and just delete it. Not only do that, but douse my phone in gasoline and set it on fire. But like the most baffling aspect of Mean Girls for me is like for a 36, and it's not a huge budget compared to like Marvel, but like for a $36 million musical with Tina Fey involved, how is the recording quality of the music this poor? Like, 
Like there's nothing. No, <laughs> this is a this is a really great high bit of praise here. There's nothing inherently ear scraping about the songwriting here, despite it being profoundly unmemorable and so boilerplate in its like melodies and arrangements that you could like probably just slap it on any third rate off Broadway musical and it would get the job done. Like it would suffice and it wouldn't sound out of place. But like I was like genuinely appalled. I mean maybe it's just because my parents have you know have played music professionally and I could listen to music with a kind of an analytical later as well. But even people I overheard coming out of the cinema were going, yeah, the music just sounded bad. Like it, it sounds like it genuinely sounds like it was recorded on GarageBand. Like the <laughs> mute, like the, the guitars and the bass and the drums are that plastic, excuse a pun, sounding that it's just like the mix and the mixing is diabolical. Like the instruments are trying to clamber over each other in this or fight for room in every song. Every song, every instrumental just sounds like a gluey mess that's like more lo-fi than a kid's toy saxaboom. Like I just, I, I was genuinely baffled. Like, did you not have professional session musicians at least come in and record these songs? Like Jesus Christ, what were you doing? And not to mention, you know, the f flat, as hell songwriting, but there really was just one moment that summed up the experience for me and how awful it was. And that was, and this is, this joke is new in the, in the musical. Cause I Googled it after, cause I was like, please God tell me that wasn't in the original film or at least it was delivered better. Mm -hmm. But no, this is, this is all, this is all on the 2024 Mean Girls. And there, there is a moment where I realised the true depth of the atrocities I was witnessing on screen. And this is when one of the characters makes a joke about the fact that, and I, and I quote, the fact that sex cancer does not exist, and then eight teenage girls at a party all simultaneously slut drop in time with a massive beat drop. What? In the soundtrack. And it incites the party to go absolutely feral. And <laughs> it was at that point that I just started to reevaluate my life decisions, <laughs> particularly the one not to walk out of this catastrophe and utter waking nightmare. Oh no. F. F F F. 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 I hope oh I never God. have we to sit through it again. Ages. You haven't had an F in ages. Cocaine Bear was the last F. And it's not much better than that. <laughs> oh, I mean that's such a shame. I mean for me, Mean Girls has one of the tightest teen movie scripts ever, right? It just works. It's so clever. It's something that I, I... Mean Girls could genuinely be taught in film school and I wouldn't be mad about it. You know, it's just a very tight no, script. It's Tina Fey. I'm a big Tina Fey fan. And it was interesting because I was looking at a couple of articles where Tina Fey was being interviewed and she was talking about how much of the new movie was an update from the original. And she said that some of the jokes in the original you can't do anymore. You know, the cultures changed, teen cultures changed, which I'm, I was kind of on board with. But then it appears to me that a lot of this is still the original. All they've done is put TikTok on it and kind of taken out the bite, which is sort of the point of Mean Girls, right? Like, you know, teen girls... <laughs> In a story like this, they go for the jugular. You know, the reason why the original works so well is the offensive jokes. That's why it's one of those films that should only ever exist in 2004. <laughs> because it's kind of a film that could <laughs> only exist in 2004. You know, I think to update it, if you're going to update it, update it. Like, update it fully. I think the problem of this is that it's, it's an adaptation. It's an adaptation, not of the original film, but it's an ad adaptation of a stage musical, which was an adaption of the original film. And I think we've just got, we've got more watered down in every iteration. Like this story has been absolutely squeezed of the juice that made it so entertaining to watch. So I think, you know, I, I had high hopes for this. I've got a massive lesbian crush on Rene Rapp, you know, who doesn't? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the original source, the original film, it's a product of its time, but that's why it works. And yeah, I think we should all maybe just go watch Mean Girls wearing pink and 
just forget that this one ever <laughs> happened. <laughs> yes, let's please God just let this one just slither down into the sewer and never see the light of day. I will instantly be interested in what you, if you hate it quite as much as I did. I've heard some people that have never seen that, uh, you know, I've seen reviews from people who have never seen the original that quite enjoyed it. I think maybe once you've, you know, once you've had the good stuff, you never go back. You know, it's not the same. I think maybe if this was my first introduction to Mean Girls and I wasn't aware of the great delivery of the lines, you know, the comedy gold that came out of that original one, maybe I'd find more humour out of this kind of new edition. Because the thing is, you're expecting all the jokes as well. Like, I, I could quote half of that mm. film off by heart. I don't think any of the jokes are going to take me off guard, apart from maybe that one about sex cancer not being a thing. Oh, <laughs> that might take me by surprise. Um, but yeah, interesting, 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 interesting. That's our first F of the new year. Um, so let's move swiftly <laughs> on. Big moment. Swiftly on. I hope that this is an another F. <laughs> This is Society of the Snow, which I know nothing about. So please enlighten me. Do you know about the film Alive? New. No. Okay, so well it's there is they're both based off the same true story, except this is now a an Argentinian Spanish production. Um whereas Alive was an American sort of retelling of this. A true survival story and what an incredible true story it is. It's based around um, the Uruguayan 1972 Andes flight disaster where a team of rugby players um, were being sort of flown over the Alps towards a, a, you know, an international rugby match and, and crashed in the, in the Andes, in the Andes mountains during 1972. You know, it was a horrific plane crash you know you know the plane was torn apart and hit different parts of the mountains and then the the rugby team you know had to survive you know, try and survive you know extreme cold for you know the ensuing months and you know lack of food you know the avalanches you know the extreme weather you know the lack of water everything you know, you know the harshest of harsh conditions and actually and this is a very well known fact about the story had to eventually resort to cannibalism from you know the people who didn't survive in order to you know, keep themselves fed and you know survive the the ensuing months you know just you know an unbelievable true story and I I, I wasn't you know aware that this was coming out I didn't know that there was kind of an, a new sort of updated you know, adaptation of of this story but I'm so glad there has been because I haven't seen a live so I'm not going to comment on. You know, that other than I'm glad that you know this this story is now being told from the perspective of the country you know and nationality of the people that it happened to and you know despite this quite melodramatic voiceover narration that kind of had me a bit worried at the start of the film you know the rest of the film does not you know take on that tone and I was very pleased I was not actually at all prepared for how headfirst the director dives into the intensity of the subject matter you know his direction and the cinematography are amazing you know, the setting of the andes mountains you know does imply a sense of visual grandeur that the film certainly has and the widescreen captures the vast vastness of the valley and also you know the sense of isolation and danger that the group are under you know being so remote and stranded but it's the use of wide angle lenses and the proximity of the camera to the chaos that you know makes this such an immensely visceral viewing experience the the director's always driving the camera uncomfortably close into the actors faces as they you know they're shivering in the cold and you know or you know trying to dig themselves out of an avalanche you know the you know the camera's so close to their limbs and bodies that they become trapped and injured you know almost these slight fisheye lenses that they're using to distort the edges of the frame and even you know accentuate the size of the characters in the middle of the frame you know lend the plane crash and avalanche sequences you know an added claustrophobia and in in intensity you know the the visual constriction and the frantically disorienting edit that mimics the panic of the survivors and you know this chaotic sound mix bursting with terrified screams. It, it genuinely makes for some of the most breathlessly heart-pounding and claustrophobic sequences you know in any film I've seen in the past year. You know there were 
scenes almost the avalanche scene in particular you know made me sort of almost recoil in horror at just how you know life-threatening this situation is and how viscerally the director was able to capture it it's so fearlessly pressed in so closely to buried people fighting to get out of deep snow you know you palpably feel the suffocating horror of these situations you know i was genuinely taken aback at how harrowing these scenes were and how acutely the director plunges you in there but you know due to the amount of scenes like this over the course of the film you know in a survival thriller like this you do run the risk of either exhausting the viewer or you know the film becomes kind of a thankless trauma exhibition you know rather than the tribute to determination survival and, and the strength of the human spirit but society of the snow and its writer director they clearly understand the need for that balance between brutality and humanity to make the film the right amount of palatable but also tribute the survivors properly without sacrificing the grit of the real life horror of the story and it's very well structured because it very deftly flips back and forth between you know moments of pure terror and destruction with scenes of cooperation and optimism, pragmatism in escaping the dangerous situation. And I think it really thoroughly achieves that balancing act of bearing witness to the pain and the horror, but also the strength of these characters. And, um, but also like kind of ensuing the, ensuring the structural scenes of the script don't become apparent. Like it doesn't, the film doesn't take on like this overly episodic structure or anything. It's not clunky in that regard, despite, you know, the litany of issues the group encounter. And a pretty hefty two and a half, no, not two and a half hours. It says two hours and 20 minutes on Netflix. Uh, 10 minutes of that is credits. Two hour and 10 minute runtime in total. There's a continuous kind of in the moment urgency of the ordeal. It's very well sustained. And the most gruesome aspects of the story, like the cannibalism, are dealt with kind of the, a great deal of visual sensitivity that is very respectable and not sort of garish, garish at all. Um, and, it, you know, due to the nature of the story, it's very much focused on the collective experience of the survivors rather than a, a precise viewpoint of any particular character. It's an ensemble piece without a kind of great depth given to any individual character, but that isn't an issue here because, you know, the, the in, because it, is, it was in real life an ensemble experience and also the entire cast just utterly committed to the physical and emotional demands of the material and the, the rapport they build together is, feels very natural and also kind of very inspiring and very just well played and very believable. Um, I've seen some complaints of the film being way too long. I wouldn't say it's way too long. I think past the 90 minute mark, there is kind of a small plateau where maybe there's some more character moments, but I don't feel like the story and, and the relationships are being progressed all that much. I reckon you could have cut this by 10, 15 minutes and you would have had a spot on runtime. But even then, I still think it, you know, it's well paced enough that it doesn't become a slog and it's incredibly powerful. and. A really, I think I would be again can't fully comment because I haven't seen a live, but I would be surprised if I were to watch anything else and, and not think that Society of the Snow is now the definitive sort of telling of this really remarkable true life story. Um, again, very physical and very rigorous, but also very you know emotive, um, historical kind of survival. Thriller. Very, very good work here. I would give this an A minus. It's on Netflix. Interesting, interesting stuff. Nice that we have a doc on the list this week. We haven't got a lot of time, so we're going to go straight on to Saltburn. <laughs> Another 180. We've, it's an eclectic mix this week, uh, Billy, uh, as always. Saltburn. I've got some stories about Saltburn, but I'm going to let you do your review first and then I might chip in <laughs> with some uh, interesting well, tales. Okay, so... <laughs> well, Saltburn's essentially kind of talented Mr. Ripley for a new age, and I kind of that will almost kind of come back to haunt the review later when I sort of talk about the, the pros and cons of the film. Um, Centres around Barry Keoghan as a sort of lower class. A Liverpudlian boy from a struggling background who sort of befriends a very rich and upper class family kind of by meeting a son by chance at a very sort of prestigious, um, I believe he meets them at Oxford University actually. And they sort of strike up this bond that may be just friendly, but might also be kind of taking a more sort of toxic, sexualized or, you know, sort of sin sinister tone than their initial friendship potentially implies. 
he is invited back, and this boy is played by Jacob Lordy. And Jacob Lordy invites Barry Keoghan back to his sort of family manor over the summer Saltburn. And weird psychological, psychosexual um, games of power and you know, psychological warfare um, ensue. And, you know, the, as the, the lower class and the upper class kind of eventually begin to battle it out and sort of uh, strive for control of the situation. Now, I, a lot of people have made a lot of fuss about sort of the weirdest scenes in Saltburn and also just generally of it as an erotic thriller. I don't really think in the end it's that steamy or that kind of passionate or intoxicating of an, as an erotic thriller. I don't entirely believe the dynamic between the central pair. I think it's just you know, unlike Jude Law and Matt Damon in like Talented Mr. Ripley, for example, I don't think the character interaction is, in general across the cast, is as nuanced as as something like the Talented Mr. Ripley or Parasite in kind of its its sort of look at the dichotomy between the lower class and the upper class and how they sort of interact and sort of function and feed off each other, sort of this symbiotic relationship. Um, I think in the end it's quite a surface level examination of that. And because in the end it doesn't have a lot of depth of story and, and theme, what it then kind of rests on is the weirdness of it and also just kind of how entertaining of kind of a yarn, of a romp is it. And at two hours and with kind of a, a meandering sort of pace and not as riotous or as gripping uh, a thriller sensibility as the Emerald Fennell's previous film Promising Young Woman or as kind of radical a statement or plot as that film, it kind of ends up for me being a little bit dull. I I want, you know, th there's two kind of kind of grotesque, but also compared to other weird films I've seen, not that edgy sequences in it that have caused a lot of controversy and sort of a splash online, but really they feel like they're, they're thrown in there to inject some liveliness into a story that in the end is kind of drawn out and doesn't really have a lot going for it in terms of um, emotional depth or really just raw entertainment factor. You know, the party sequences are lavish and decadent, but in the end, I just wanted this to be, I, you know, I think about something like Infinity Pool and how that has some really whacked out, hallucinogenic, you know, hazy, um, just in, insane sequences in it that are kind of, and a really sort of brazen, um, vicious story and i just look at this and i go it feels limp i just want it to be more intoxicating to go harder on the sort of riotous energy that you know the plot summary um implies that just really isn't on display here in the end and i don't know why it was shot in four by three i i want it i wanted widescreen i if if it's about you know decadence and lavishness and trying 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 to critique that, why don't we sort of visually build out that idea and that motif? But you know, squashing it in four by three kind of was a counterintuitive part for the of the direction for me. I also think the twist is really obvious. I don't know about I you. I was fooled. But I, I must admit I didn't see it coming. But yeah, I appreciate it. as someone who's seen as many films as you had. <laughs> maybe there's a little bit more uh, to it. Mm. Uh, no, maybe a bit easier to yeah. spot for you. I, I just think that there are recent films like Infinity Pool and Parasite and Talented Mr. Ripley that have done many aspects of this film's plot and narrative um, and just visual style, everything. This, this, this feels like a very pale imitation of a lot of similar, much better films. And it's not terrible. I'd give it a C plus. I'm kind of middling on it. Like it was fine while it was on. I just, it just, it's, it's okay. And I don't think it's as provocative and edgy as it thinks it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I kind of agreed to be honest. I had, I had similar thoughts where I feel like this film was designed specifically for early 2010s Tumblr. Like, does that make any sense? I feel like that's... Very true. That's a perfect no, that description for me. I feel like it was made for the Tumblr children of 2010. Um, with the, you know, the kind of shock, erotic 
humor well, not humor but the you know the that kind of dark humor and the you know the homoeroticism and the murder and yeah i i didn't vibe with it as much as a lot of people did i found some of the stuff in it shocking but it was kind of in a i knew you know when you start a film expecting shocking things because you've heard so much about it i was like oh ew i guess moving on you know (laughs) i wasn't you know i'm the same (laughs) as you i wasn't like fully like immersed in oh this is fucked up i was just kind of like this is this feels like it's been designed to be talked about but you know not in a way that really it helped me to engage with the film in any way. I did like the twist. I mm. thought that was interesting. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I, I heard that there was meant to be more of that, that, that um, Richard E. Grant's character was meant to have known the twist very early on because of the egg scene. Um, I heard oh. that it was perhaps a cut scene where, you know, when, um, when Barry Keegan's character sends the eggs back for not being a certain way. Mm. And apparently Hugh Grant's character is meant to see that they actually were done that way and to see that he actually doesn't know what he's talking about. And therefore he kind of starts to figure out early that he's not who he says he is or who he's pretending to be, which I thought could have been quite interesting considering, you know, the unraveling of that character um, there were some scenes that I that I really liked. I thought Rosamund Pike and Carrie Mulligan together were a mood. Uh, I thought they were really entertaining in a horrible way together as like a pairing. Um, we've already said before that I would listen to a podcast of them talking, not because I'd like anything they say, but just because they'd say some <laughs> outrageous things that would be very entertaining for the rest of the world. Um, I think um, very memeable content um i i I do have some stories about saltburn but i'm trying to think in my head about how much i'm allowed to say uh the long and short of it is that i work for daytime television you know we're talking like six o'clock in the morning to yeah about six o'clock in the morning to around 10 in the morning and they always ask for clips of films especially when people have been talking about what's been on during the, you know, during the month and Saltburn was a big topic. And part of my job is to get those clips from the production company and basically, you know, what can we use? What's available to use? And (laughs) pretty much all of the clips requested, I was like, have you, have you seen the film though? Do you know how much of this is not (laughs) 6am appropriate? (laughs) Or appropriate for any time other than like past the watershed. <laughs> I I feel really bad for the amount of like grannies and innocent TV viewers that were like, oh, everyone's talking about this salt burn. I guess I better give it to. Oh my god, you know, I I, I do feel bad for the oh my <laughs> the god, grave the, you know, scene, the people, geez. the poor people that watch daytime television that watched this this filth. <laughs> Because it was on early morning. <laughs> what is this? Heresy. Well, there you go. That's, that's, my, that's my story. It might end up getting cut. Okay, moving on to our final review of the episode. And this is Good Grief, written, directing and starring one of my current favourite comedy actors, Dan Levy, son of Eugene Levy, who is a uh, famed comedy comedy icon. Really, he's been in so many different films. Most famously as the dad in American Pie. I think that's uh, that's safe to say one of his starring roles. But this is his <laughs> son. Um, he made a name for himself in the excellent, excellent Canadian TV show Shit's Creek. And this is his foray into film. And it's it's an interesting one. I've been looking forward to this because it seems like quite a different film than what we might expect um, Dan Levy to produce for us at this point in his career but please tell us more Billy what's it all about and should we give it a watch 
Yeah, so more I think more dramatic and more downbeat, but also still funny um, than we were initially expecting from Dan Levy. I mean, you know, I worship the ground the man walks on from playing David. David, as his mother would say in Shit's Creek. You, David. Um, just an iconic character. So I just, I, but I was ready for him to kind of put his heart on his sleeve and develop something a bit more um, low key, a bit more understated, a bit more emotional. Um, this is on Netflix now, and. I, I think it's definitely worth seeking out. It sort of centers around a uh, artist and illustrator for um, children's books and uh, his famed uh, husband, uh, who's a famed writer, um, passes away very suddenly in a car accident on um, Christmas Eve, I believe it is. And it's essentially around, um, centers around him and his two friends, played by uh, Ruth Negger and. Uh, he is the lead in yesterday. His name escapes me, but um, they are. Uh, they travel out to a flat in Paris that Dan Levy's character finds out his husband um, has that he never knew about, and sort of unpacks, sort of heal old wounds, and sort of try to forge a path forward um, for Dan Levy's character um, without his husband in his life now sort of regain his footing. Um, Himesh Patel is the actor name I was searching for there. So I think despite the, the talent pedigree involved in the project, I think on paper it would be quite easy for Good Grief to be somewhat insincere or at worst case crass and tasteless because it's showing very privileged and wealthy people kind of wallow, wallowing in, well, one could argue it's showing you know, wealthy characters wallowing in self-pity, you know, disguised as, you know, a well-intentioned comedy drama about grief. Thankfully, the quality of Dan Levy's writing is a big part of why this ends up working, kind of sidestepping being a vanity project, kind of masquerading as a thoughtful, emotional portrait. It's not wrong to say the plot has the contextual surrounding of privilege, like in the characters' careers, the quite lavish interior settings, the polished costumes, but the script and particularly the dialogue does a very nice job of having the characters kind of lightheartedly and slightly like cynically mock each other's access to wealthy activities. They're kind of like poking fun at themselves, you know, or out other, other times, you know, outright criticizing each other for acting spoil. And this isn't d delivered in greatly verbose fashion or reference particularly frequently. We're not beaten over the head with this idea that kind of tonally registers as cringeworthy. Rich people have feelings too, sap. You know the the humor and jabs. You know they are they aren't overly caustic or breezy in delivery to where they would kind of downplay the emotional tenderness of the story either. So I think it walks that line very nicely. And whilst there isn't a ton of, I wouldn't say there isn't a ton of psychological depth on display here. There are some nice observations in monologues about how grief disrupts emotional routines, life routines, and grieving people sometimes subconsciously regulate their emotions and shift their mental focus to other ideas to distract from points that would they want to avoid, you know, fully living in or processing. There are some conversations between Dan Levy and his lawyer in the film, you know, the descriptions of turmoil and the reasoning behind it, they do feel quite heavy handed. And I'm like, okay, can we just dial back that, please? Can we start talking like regular human beings for a second? The themes in there don't feel like they blossom as naturally from these conversations. But like, that isn't true of many exchanges of the film. They feel very organic in a lot of instances. The chemistry of the central trio is really strong. They're kind of robust in their criticisms of each other, but they're also very kind of free and natural in their more casual conversations. Their dynamic is well-constructed in the screenplay. It's like Ruth Neger is the more flamboyant and joyfully supportive free spirit, whereas Hamish Patel is the more sturdy and focused voice of reason. And they're written with enough complexity, though, that they don't end up feeling like stock archetypes either. The comedic and also more dramatic instances of friction they come up against for these reasons are they're well judged and kind of integrate organically into the conversations. They don't feel kind of artificially injected. Dan Levy's direction is solid. It's got the camera, it's got a nice, delicate, mid paced, handheld quality to it. It isn't too overt. And Levy shows some lovely kind of directorial flourishes such as a shot alongside him in bed, then a smooth pan upwards to kind of gently emphasise the fact that, you know, his husband is no longer there, who he would ordinarily turn to look at. Kind of the rich, pillowy, ambient synth chords and nimble piano runs in the score. They kind of make for this really earnestly moving musical backdrop, kind of tastefully accentuates the sadness and acceptance in a given scene. And I, I really liked that. 
I do feel that once the group travel to Paris, some narrative steam and momentum is kind of lost. And at times it feels as though the script is kind of clambering for events to sustain the remainder of the runtime and introduces some characters that do feel a little bit like afterthoughts, more akin to plot points rather than like fully fleshed out people. I think that to a certain degree, the polish Good Grief has in its filmmaking does prevent it from being a super raw or dense exploration of grief. But at the same time, I don't think it's intending to. And I think the certain amount of sheen the story has, it contributes positively to this gentleness in tone and the film feeling genuinely heartfelt. It's solid. It's not going to set the world on fire, but it was a really good, nice directorial debut from Dan Levy. I'm going to give this one a B. Thank you for listening to the test screening. That is our final review of the episode. If you would like to get in touch and be involved, please like and subscribe on YouTube and also follow us on TikTok and Instagram for more test screening content. And we'll be back next week with another set of fab reviews. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.